Well, good morning. I invite you to open your Bible to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is kind of where we're going to begin today. As we start off today, I want to share, um, I think, a good practice that we just need to constantly cultivate in our life is gratitude. And so I, I want to do my best most Sundays to start off with just saying a few things that I'm grateful for. Uh, part of it is I just want you to be able to share in that, in that joy of what God is doing in the body of Christ here. Um, I'm so grateful for our deacons um, that serve this church so faithfully. Um, yesterday, our deacons were here for about four to five hours doing all kind of projects to serve you. So when you go in a room today and it smells good or it looks clean or whatever, um, there was a whole group of deacons that were here yesterday as well as some of our students uh, that were here helping to just do projects all around our property um, to, to be good stewards of, of what God has entrusted to us as a facility in our city to do ministry with and from. And so I'm so grateful for you that are our deacons. And church, you have an incredible group of deacons that serve you faithfully, um, that pray for you, that serve you in very practical ways. Um, I'm so grateful for a text message that I got um, this past week. Uh, this is one of our members. And so we're, we're all aware of, of the shooting that took place in Buffalo. New York and, um, and how it was racially motivated, but I want you to just see how, how grateful I am for the power of the gospel and why, the, and why we are a gospel people. I mean, we are a Jesus people who know that, that the gospel is what truly transforms the soul and the heart of a person, and that changes everything else because one of our members who is a member of color, a, a, a black member of First Baptist New Orleans, texted me this week and said this, please pray for the young man that shot people at the top store. I pray for his salvation and I hope that he has offered forgiveness. That is not the heart of most people in moments like this when there's something racially motivated. Instead, usually the, the heart of people is, I hope he gets everything that's coming to him kind of thing. But in this moment, through the power of the gospel, a member is saying, will you join me in praying for the salvation of this person, um, that they might know Christ and know the forgiveness of God in the midst of something like that. Uh, that's Christ at work in you. I just want you to see the power of Christ at work in you as the body of Christ and how that brings in this hope in the world today. I'm so grateful too for our, our children and our children's ministry. I'm, I'm so thankful for Courtney Campbell. I don't know if she's in here. I hate to embarrass her. Um, but one of the things that she did, God put it in her heart that she could do something to help raise money in order to send all of the kids that are in our preteen program, so our fifth and sixth graders, to go on a mission trip this year that they're gonna be going on in just a couple of weeks to Waco, Texas. Um, she is in martial arts and she, she decided that she's really good at breaking boards, so like, you know, like actually breaking boards. And so instead of doing the bike-a-thon, um, she participated in that as well, but she, she came up with a break a board -a thon or something like that. I think it was a break-a-thon or something like that and set out to, to break boards and got pledges for each board's broken, all that, she raised over $4,200. She personally paid for every, yeah, I mean, that's incredible. I just want you to see how just a, a young lady in our church, God put it in her heart that she wanted to cover the cost, and why is that? So that all the money from the bike-a-thon could go to help the needs of Ukrainians that are right now refugees in Poland. She, she wanted every dollar that we raised from that to be able to go to that. And she personally set out to pay for the entire cost, and she did. 
So I just want you to see, like, you know, there is so much to be grateful for. I am so inspired and encouraged by you, the body of Christ at First Baptist New Orleans, the things that you are doing to love one another, um, to show grace in our city, to serve. Um, it's, it's an amazing thing. And so I just always want to encourage you and to, and to say before the Lord how grateful I am for these sort of things. I'm grateful for his word and that we're walking through. And I want to say that as we're going through First and Second Samuel, I know that it is at a at a, at a blitz kind of pace. Um, and so I, I want to say why, um, at the beginning of this sermon, why I think that big picture, because we went through Luke pretty quick and we're going through First and Samuel pretty quick. I think that sometimes taking a season to look at the big picture of some of the different aspects of God's story, when you see how the big picture is fitting together and you begin to train yourself in some specific ways of reading the Bible, like looking for God, in the Old Testament, like keeping your eyes on him and seeing how he is at work through these different individual characters and these different stories, that helps train you so that then as you, through reading the Bible on a regular basis, stop and you're reading God's word, you read it better. You're keeping your eyes on God and not just thinking about yourself and how does this story relate to me? Does it help me today with a difficult boss or financial difficulties? Sometimes we can be very self-centered in our reading of the Bible. And so sometimes these big pictures help you say like, oh, the story is really about something much bigger. It's ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. But even here in the Old Testament, God was doing something that's very consistent with his character that we see through all of the Bible. So that's why we take this big picture, and today we do the same thing. Now to catch you up to speed kind of where we are in the Old Testament, remember God's people have been set apart in Genesis chapter 12, beginning with Abraham, and then they, they kind of continue to produce and to multiply, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, they end up in Egypt for 400 years. They're in slavery. God delivers them through Moses. They come out. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And what I'm doing right now is just summarizing Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they go through and then they finally get to this point of transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua, and then Joshua leads the people of God into the promised land, a land that was promised way back to Abraham that's now being realized in this moment as they're coming into Joshua. And so they take the land, but they don't take all the land. They do a lot of what God says, but they don't do all that God says. Um, so all of these things, and then you get to the book of Judges. And Judges is kind of a downward spiral for the people of God. Um, they, they begin to do a lot of things that God has, has very explicitly said do not do. But God all in the midst of it is his people are doing the wrong thing. And then they're like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? God, please help. God helps. And he raises up a judge. And the judge, this leader that God has raised up, leads them out of their difficulty, out of their slavery, out of the predicaments they find themselves in. But then they fall right back into it, where they go back into idolatry, they go back into sinful practices, and then they find themselves miserable again, and they cry out. And you see this cycle happening, but it goes downward. It's a downward spiral that you see in the book of Judges. So that it ends at the end of the book of Judges with everybody was doing what was right in his own eyes. And then you get this little interlude of a story called Ruth. And, and, and Ruth is kind of paving the way for really what we come to today because of a family line. And so it's a beautiful story of how God was even at work among people among other nations and how he was showing his grace to what would be called the Gentiles even in the Old Testament and including them in his promises and bringing them into his family line. And so that then leads with the, the ending pointing us to a story that then picks up in 1 Samuel. 
And we, we've looked at 1 Samuel, and we've got a little sing song that we're going to practice real fast. So if this is your first Sunday, one of the goals that I'm after is that you would know with five kind of major movements, what is the content of First and Second Samuel? Uh, I am after biblical literacy. I want us to know the Word of God, not just to come in and do kind of the American Idol church edition, you know, where we rate sermons, like, well, that was a good one, or that one wasn't so good. That's not the point. That's not why we gather. It's just to rate sermons. We come in to, to, to submit ourselves, to kind of come in and say, God, we're here to hear from you. God, we're here to worship you. God, we're here to surrender our lives. God, we need you. And so when we come to the word of God is to say, God, speak to us, please. God, speak to the hearts of your people. And so I'm going to pull it up on the screen real fast, and we're going to practice this again um, of kind of the, the, the of what is included in First and Second Samuel. So let's all read this together. Starts with Samuel, stalls with Saul, surprises with David, sings of a call, and all of it ends with signs of the fall. So those are the five major movements through First and Second Samuel, okay? So Samuel, Saul, David, kind of pointing to the promise, and then just chaos, okay? So when we get to Second Samuel, it gets real bad, okay? So let's say it one more time. Starts with Samuel, stalls with Saul, surprises with David, sings of a call, and all of it ends with signs of the fall. My hope for you is that when we get to the end of this, you may not remember everything that was said, but you'll remember the main things that were in First and Second Samuel. And I hope that that will serve you as you continue to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, knowing the Word of God. So today, we come to the content that's called in this little lineup, Surprises with David. Because remember, we talked about Samuel leading up to the ordination of Saul as king. Remember that that's not really under the best circumstances. The people of God are saying, we want a king like everybody else. Uh, we, we want to be just like all the other nations. And so God says, okay, Samuel, give them what they want. Even though this is going to be very costly to the people of God. And so God chooses Saul, but then Saul rejects God. And that's important for us to see is that God has been clear through his prophet Samuel and what he's to do and to wait on. And he rejects it. And he does things in his own power. He does things for the praise and the pleasing of people. And that causes him to be rejected as God's king. And you'll remember that last week we looked at a specific passage where God said that the Lord, God said the Lord has found a man after his own heart in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. And so today we come to that person, and that person, his name is David. And so I want us to turn first to chapter 16, verse 7. I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, for this key verse that I think is so key for our understanding of the story of David. And really it becomes key to our understanding of Jesus Christ and why so many people did not see Jesus for who he was. They, they looked at him and they said, certainly this isn't the Messiah. Certainly this is not the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And why is that? Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Will you pray with me? God, I pray today knowing that you see our hearts today. We stand exposed before you. Nothing is hidden from your sight. 
And so, Lord, today, by the power and the goodness of your Holy Spirit, will you, the God who sees, remove those things in us that do not belong? Will you refocus us on your grace? Will you refocus us and reorient our lives to you, the living God? Because in a million ways, we make ourselves the center of the universe, and our lives revolve around us and our desires and our plans. But Lord, if anything, your word orients us to this one reality that you are at the center of it all. And so Lord, may our eyes be on you today. May you fix our eyes on you today through a walk and a relationship with Jesus Christ through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. This morning, I want us We've got a lot of text, and so what we're going to have to do is just choose a few main ideas to look at today, because we're looking really at the story of David that extends from 1 Samuel chapter 16 all the way to chapter 31. And so we're going to just have to skip around a little bit today because there's just too much text to cover. But I want you to, again, keep your eyes on God. Remember, this is a a book of history, but we kind of did that play on words of capitalizing the H, I, and S, his story, okay? Because this is God's story that's unfolding now at this point with a man named David. And so the first point that I want us to see as we look to the Lord and to consider him is this, that the Lord sees The Lord sees. This is good news for us. This is bad news for us. That's what you always have to kind of hold intention in these moments is God sees everything. He sees you in your difficulty. He knows the the specific circumstances that you are facing right now. The bad news is God sees you. God knows the specific circumstances that you're in right now, and he knows exactly down to exact motivation, what you've done and why you've done it. And so this is one of those, it's a coin. One side, you're like, wow, this is great news because God sees and he helps. On the other side, it's like, man, God sees everything. He knows even the condition of my heart, my inner thoughts. The story picks up with Samuel. Samuel is kind of mourning the fact that Saul has been rejected as king and and, and God kind of confronts him. In verse 1 of chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've selected a king from his sons. And Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Kind of shows the nature of Saul. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate to you. So again, God's in the seat of selection. This is not a democracy. This is a theocracy. God choosing who the king will be. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. And when the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? Now remember, just previous in the story, Samuel has hacked a king to death with a sword. So they have every reason to be a little bit like, do you come in peace? 
Or is this a really bad day for us? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Consecrate means he set them apart. Like God's doing something in this family right here. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. In other words, he's looking at the outward appearance. He sees Jesse's oldest son. He says, now there's a strapping young man. He may not be as tall as Saul, but looks good. Looks like he'll be an excellent leader. But the Lord said to Samuel, this is our key verse today, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse then called Minadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shema. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? Almost like Jesse's forgotten. Well, they're still the youngest, he answered. Right now he's out tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down and, and eat until he gets here. So, set, so Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Which right, kind of like goes against the grade of like, it's still like they're still looking at the appearance. There's still something in the appearance that, that man just gravitates to. And I think it's even kind of recorded right here that, that that's still being, being captured in this moment. But God, don't miss it, is looking at the heart. And there's something about David, that reflects the heart that God is after. And then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. And then Samuel set out and went to Raymond. So this is the selection of David. I read it in its entirety because I want you to hear the biblical story and how it moves and how God sees different than you and I see. How he looks at David in a way that nobody else was looking at David. That God sees. You see, when we turn over then to the New Testament and we look for the account of this story, we find it in Acts 13. As the sermon is being given, and what's recounted there is, is this. And when he had removed him, talking about Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. That's what God was after. That's what he was looking for in this heart was a heart that would do God's will. And we'll see in the very last section of what we get to of 2 Samuel that while David had set in his heart to do God's will and in so many ways he did, we see signs of the fall in David and in everyone in his family, pointing to this reality that there must be another who would come, who would have the sort of heart that the king to lead God's people would need, who would actually do all of God's will. Because this king ultimately fails, but there would be a king that would come and would do exactly what God's will was. And we know that king and his name is Jesus. You see, we need a heart that is after God's own. 
And praise be to God, that is exactly what we have received by receiving the heart of Christ. That's the good news for you and me today, is that God looks at the heart, and while he looks and he sees in each of us a heart of stone, by grace he has extended to you who have said, Jesus Christ is Lord. He has extended to you a heart of flesh. And it was a heart that was only made available because of a deceased donor. Someone who died for you to give you his very heart. I make the point because I've personally been through transplant to understand this. That the only way a person gets a new heart is if someone dies. And the only way that you and I get a new heart is if someone dies. And Jesus died for you and me that we might receive a new heart. The heart of Christ himself. You see, bad news for you and me is that God sees your heart. He knows the motivations of your heart. He knows, his word says, that the inclinations of the heart are evil. God knows and he looks upon the, the people to see if there's any righteous. And he says there's none, not even one. God's word again and again makes clear that our hearts are in need of something that only God can provide, and that's exactly what he has done in Christ. Second, as we move through the text, if we turn over to chapter 17, we greet a story that we have put in every children's Bible because it's such a noteworthy tale. And this is the story of David and Goliath. And the point that I want us to, to see, first of all, is the Lord sees, but then secondly, the Lord saves. You see, so many of our accounts of what happened that day on the battlefield make David the hero. They make David the one who rescued the people of God. It elevates David. But that flies in the face of what David says is happening on the field that day. And that's what's important for you and I to grasp when we come to these texts is that we often make the mistake of making the character that we're reading about, David, the main point, while David is saying God's the main point. God's the one that's going to deliver us today. The Lord our God fights for us. And that's what makes the story so noteworthy is how God uses things that you and I would say, that's not going to help. There's no way that that's going to help. You're telling me that just by believing in Jesus, giving my life to him, that that's going to change my life? <laughs> way to simplify the real complex problems of my life. We reject the things that God says, this is how I have chosen to deliver you. This is how I've chosen to rescue you. This is how I work. And in it, we see a pattern of how God works. You see, this is the pattern emerging right here in the pages of the Old Testament, the pattern of a guy like David. You see, David at this point is still young. I'm gonna summarize the story for the sake of time today. But what we, what we need to see really captured in verses 45 through 47, turn with me over there in chapter 17, is this, what David says to Goliath. Now, the things about Goliath are noted here, just how big he is, kind of the force that he was. He had all of the Israelite army shaking. They were like, oh my gosh, like, you know, like how are we gonna defeat this guy? 
And so he's taunting the people of God each day, all of these things going on. And then David comes. And he comes just as, a, as an Uber Eats deliverer. That's all he is in this story. He just shows up with the food and says, you know, this is from dad. You know, and they're like, what? And then he sees Goliath come out and he says, what's this? And they're like, go back home. That's their response. And he says, I'll fight him. This little punk. <laughs> That's how he's seen by his brothers, of course. The one that got anointed by Samuel. <sighs> you know, like how annoying this guy is. So against all odds, they're like, okay, we'll bring it to King Saul. See what he has to say. King Saul says, okay, we'll let you fight. But you got to put on my armor. And there's all of these illustrations that we can make with that of putting on Saul's armor he can't even move it's so heavy so he takes it off and then what does he do he goes and he gathers five smooth stones that he puts in his pouch to go and then confront Goliath and that reaches this moment right here where then he is speaking to a very upset Goliath who's basically said you sent you know a little puppy out here to play with me and I'm going to kill him and I'm going to kill him to show all of you that you shouldn't disrespect me in this way by sending out a child to do a man's work. Verse 45, David says to the Philistine, just get the picture. This young man speaking to a giant who if he loses the battle, Israel becomes slaves to the Philistines. So there's some stakes on the line. And David looks at him and he says to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, in javelin, but I come against you. Notice he doesn't say with five smooth stones because I'm a good shot. Nope. I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. It's about you and I, Goliath. This is about you and God. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. And let that sink in on us again, that truth, that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. Do you see the hero of this story? It is the Lord our God. And David captures that perfectly. That was part of his heart. Was that he recognized it is God who acts on behalf of his people. It is God who will save us today. And in that moment he slings the stone pierces Goliath right in the head. He falls down, walks over, takes Goliath's own sword, cuts his head off, and then the people of God, in absolute shock and awe, say, let's go. And so they take off after the Philistines. The Philistines are scared out of their mind because they can't believe that their giant has just been defeated. They're not afraid of the Israelites. They're afraid of the God who fights for the Israelites. They know they've been defeated. And so they hightail it, and victory is won for the people of God that day. Every word spoken by David fulfilled in this passage. 
But I want you to note something. If you turn over to your New Testament, guess what you won't find in the New Testament? The story of David and Goliath. You'll find it in every children's book, every board book edition of what we impart to our children, but that's not the story that gets captured in the New Testament. And why is that? Because this story was ultimately pointing to the story of Jesus Christ. You see, it's Jesus who in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter pulls out a sword and is a bad aim and cuts off the ear of a servant, he says, put away your swords. Why is that? Because the Lord doesn't save with swords or with spears. That same truth coming to fruition in this moment. How does the Lord save? The Lord saves by sending his son to come and to die for you and for me. You see, when we turn over to the New Testament, we don't read about Jesus slinging any stones, but we do read about a stone being rolled away to reveal that one has been raised who is victorious over sin and over the grave. We don't read about any heads being cut off by Jesus. But what we do read is of his defeat of our worst enemies, sin and death. This is what this story in 1 Samuel was ultimately pointing toward. That God would deliver his people. And he would do it in the most unexpected, most unbelievable way. In a way that only he receives the credit. That's how God's been acting through the whole Bible. Doing things in such a way that only he receives the credit. And that's exactly what happens when we look And how God has chosen to save, not just Jews, but Gentiles. Making them all one new people, one family, one new creation in Christ. With a new covenant in his blood. That God in his wisdom and his grace would choose to save you and me. Not through the victorious reign of his son, but through the death of his son. Giving his son To die for you and me. That's his victory. See, the only sword pulled out in that scene was one that pierced Jesus' own side to ensure that he was dead. And my hope today is that like a sword piercing your soul, if you have never experienced the grace of Jesus Christ today, that the Spirit of God would pierce your own soul and would cause you to be quickened, awakened, to this reality of your sinfulness, but of his grace. You see, it is the Lord who saves. The Lord saves. The Lord sees, the Lord saves, and finally we see, as we go through the pages of the story of David, we see that the Lord supplies. The Lord supplies. You know, one story that finds its way into all three gospel accounts is this story in chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. David went to the priest Ahimelech at Nob, and Ahimelech was afraid to meet David. So he said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? And David answered the priest Ahimelech, the king gave me a mission, but he told me, don't let anyone know anything about the mission that I'm sending you on and what I have ordered you to do. I have stationed my young men at a certain place. Now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest told him, this is no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread. But the young men 
may eat it only if they have kept themselves from women. And David answered him, I swear that women have been kept from us as always when I go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission. So of course their bodies are consecrated today. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread for there was no bread there except the bread of the presence. This was the bread that was reserved for God. It was presented before him that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. And when the bread was removed, it was replaced with warm bread. Now, what an obscure story to then find in three of the gospel accounts. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. You would expect the story of David and Goliath, right? You would expect the story of of David being chosen over all of his bigger, better-looking brothers. But the story of David coming to this priest and requesting bread becomes the basis for how Jesus deals with some of the objections to what he and his disciples do on the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was the real issue that Jesus was constantly confronting with a lot of the Pharisees in his own day. They had a lot of issues and a lot of rules about what he could and couldn't do. And what we see in the Gospel of Luke is that on that Sabbath day, he and his disciples are walking through the fields, and his disciples just get a couple of heads of grain, and they kind of start eating it. Well, that's considered work. You're doing kind of a harvesting work on the Sabbath day. And Jesus uses this text to substantiate that he is the, the, that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then he goes on in the Gospel of Luke to heal a man on the Sabbath. And this infuriates the Pharisees. They're so angry that he would do these things. And so what gives? What's the correlation here between the Old Testament and the New and why we see this story in particular popping up? Well, I think part of it is that as all of the Scriptures do, they're orienting us in a way to Jesus Christ that we don't often expect. I think that's an important principle for you to understand and how Jesus' use of the Old Testament sometimes can kind of cause you to scratch your head and say, I I don't see how these things tie together, but Jesus ties it explicitly back into himself. And so as we read the Old Testament, we need to be constantly on the search, not inventing, but just open and looking of saying, how do these things point me ultimately to Jesus? And so this story points us ultimately to Jesus because it acknowledges something about the presence of God with his disciples in this moment. You see, this bread here is devoted to God. And Jesus uses this idea of things being devoted to God to point to things are devoted to God. That the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God created the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is establishing himself in ways that were very clear. That's why the Pharisees got so upset of equating himself in different ways with an authority. They they would say, only God has the authority to do those things. Only God has the authority to talk about what we can and can't do on the Sabbath. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Only God has the authority to take away uncleanliness. Only God And Jesus says, you're right, only God. Jesus, in this point, is revealing something about bread because ultimately what we understand is that Jesus, Jesus is after bread, that 
is to do the will of God. I want to correlate this back in a way to the fact that the Lord sees the heart. You see, in John chapter 4, if you're reading through as a church in God's word, we're in the gospel of John right now. And in John chapter 4, verses 32 through 34, we read this. But Jesus said, I have food to eat. This in the moment when he's been spending time with the Samaritan woman. And the disciples come back and they've got food for him. And he says, I'm not hungry. And they're like, did somebody else bring him food? And he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could, he have, could someone have brought him something to eat? And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That was what was in Jesus' heart. But then Jesus will go on later in the Gospel of John that we'll get to with confronting his disciples, telling them that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. You see, Jesus is God's provision. Just as God was providing for his people then this set apart bread, so God today has provided for you and me the bread of life. Set apart, consecrated in every way to God. He has given it to you. And his name is Jesus. And these passages touch in these unique ways when we begin to see throughout the pages of Scripture how God, how the Lord supplies bread. You keep turning over in 1 Samuel chapter 23, we see that the Lord supplies protection. Verse chapter 23, verses 26 through 29, we read in one of these moments where Saul is just in a, is just constantly trying to kill David. It says, Saul went along one side of the mountain and David and his men went along the other side. Even though David was hurrying to get away from Saul, Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. And then a messenger came to Saul saying, come quickly, the Philistines have raided the land. So Saul broke off his pursuit of, God, of David and went to engage the Philistines. Therefore, that place was named the Rock of Separation. From there, David went up and stayed in the strongholds of Engedi. That story, other stories reveal how God all along in David's life was protecting him at key and critical moments when Saul was about to kill him. You know, it reminds me when I think about Jesus that in Luke chapter 4 that we were reading last month, we read about that passage in Luke chapter 4 verses 29 through 30 where Jesus has done something very clear pointing to himself again as a, an authority figure sent by God, and they reject him, and they bring him up to the, to the, to the uh, ledge of a cliff, and they're ready to throw him off. It's not his time. God didn't send him to be thrown off the cliffs. God sent him to die on the cross. And so it says that he just walked through the crowd. God protecting his son all the way up into the moment that he would complete what he came to do. But here's what I want you to and I to understand is that when we read about God's protection, what we think that means is that every time I'm in trouble, God will protect me from things that are difficult and things that are painful. In fact, did you know that that's the exact sort of bait that Satan used with Jesus himself quoting from the Psalms saying that you throw yourself off from this temple. Like basically imagine yourself climbing up to the top of our steeple here and then jumping off and right before you hit the ground, God rescues you. He saves you. Satan was tempting Jesus in Matthew chapter four with this idea that if you do this, not the angels will lift you up in their hands and, and you, won't strike a, you, you won't even strike a stone. Jesus knows that God has sent him to suffer 
to suffer and to die. And so the temptation in our life today to apply it for us is that if I say yes to Jesus and to following him, that means that life will be easy and God will always protect me. There have been many faithful brothers and sisters who in obedience to Jesus Christ have gone places and said things and done things that have ultimately cost them their lives. And it is a slap in the face to those faithful brothers and sisters when you and I, many times from the safety of kind of a, of a, of a safe country with lots of advances and lots of material wealth and all of these things, and the influence that's constant in yours and my life toward a prosperity gospel, that God always wants you to be healthy and wealthy and powerful. Like that, that, that's God's plan for you. He always wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and powerful. That our brothers and sisters that are losing their jobs because they are a Christian in places like North Korea, places like China, places like Pakistan, places like Afghanistan, countries in Africa where they're dying for their faith. It's a slap in the face to say, God always wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and powerful. You must be doing something wrong. Instead, we need to look at the stories of Jesus and how there was protection for him and there was protection for David, but ultimately, it was God's will that Jesus would suffer and die for us. And there may be part of God's plan in your own life that will be difficulty, that will result in pain heartache, challenges that you say, I don't know how I'm gonna make it through this. God is with you. You can pray just as Jesus did in the garden, God, not my will, but yours be done and know, and know that his good will is exactly what is best for your life and for mine. But I want you to see the unexpected here and how confidence emerges on the pages of scripture. As we turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 24, and in 26, we see these opportunities for David himself to kill Saul. Now think about it. David has already been established to be the king that's to come. Saul has already been rejected by God from being the king. And so there are these moments, one of which is he's in a cave where Saul, I mean, this is kind of an embarrassing scene in Scripture. Saul's in the cave, it says, relieving himself. So Saul's going potty in the cave, and David is in the back of the cave. Saul doesn't know that he's in there. And so there's this moment where, where David could come up and kill Saul in this moment and say, victory is mine. What he does instead is he cuts off the, the, the edge of, Paul, of Saul's garment. So Saul has you know, got his garment kind of extended. He cuts off a corner of it, and then he comes out in another place, and he comes out and he calls out to the, to the, to the Israelites, to Saul and those that are with him, and he says, God handed you over to me today. But I've spared your life because it's not my place to take your life. God has established your days. Stop chasing me is essentially what he says. If I wanted to kill you, I could, but I didn't. But this causes perplexity for the, for the people that are with David. They're, they're, they're like, David, why don't you kill him? And he says, as the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift up my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men 
And he did not let them rise up against Saul. You see, when you know that the Lord supplies, when you look to him for the source of your life, then even when there are things like someone else that's causing your life incredible difficulty, and you know that it shouldn't be this way, you can look to God and say, God, you have ordained every one of their days, and so I will trust in you. I want you to see the confidence of this man who's on the run. This is a man who, if he took the sword in his own hand, then the throne is his. But he looks to the Lord, and he places his confidence in the Lord, and he says to God, God, you anointed him. God, you can remove him. And until you do, then I will trust in you. Brothers and sisters, that is a message for you and me today. In the difficulties that we face, You see, right now, if you're here today, you probably have said, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the confession that you give. That's what you're living your life under is this banner that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then you're saying, but Jesus is really not helping me in this specific area. I mean, think about it at work. You may be in a work situation right now where you're like, you know, I, I just, if I can just fire this person, if I can just, you know, get rid of this supervisor that's causing my life so much difficulty, if I can just do this and you start to play the role of God rather than looking to God and saying, God, your will be done. Lord, you're able to deal with this situation. You're able to give wisdom and guidance in this moment. God, you make clear your will and your will be done. That meets you right where you are. With with a difficult situation with a child, with a difficult situation with an aging parent, with a difficult situation with all of these things that we face and we begin to take matters into our own hands, God is calling us to trust in him, saying from his word in the Old Testament, saying from his word in the New Testament, I will supply your needs according to my riches. So that Paul can say, He has supplied all that I need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to have little. Paul goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, Paul has found a confidence in the Lord. A confidence that you and I so desperately need as we go through the different difficulties that we go through in this life. But if you and I are not reminding ourselves through Scripture that the Lord sees, that the Lord saves, that the Lord supplies, then in moments of testing, in moments of difficulty, we will try to be the one who sees what is best. We will be the one who tries to save ourselves or save someone else to save that son or daughter that's going off, we'll rescue them. We know what's best for them. We will be the one who tries to supply, to try to bail someone out, to try to get involved in the situation. And what we end up doing is enabling. What we do is become codependent. We, we, We end up in these even more complicated, difficult situations that are just headed for a further explosion, another volcanic eruption. That's where things end up when you and I take our eyes off of God and we try to play God. That's the warning of his word. 
That's the message of his word. And so today I just want to extend to you the, the simplistic invitation of this. Reminding you the Lord sees. He knows exactly where you are. And only the Lord can save you. Only he can. And the way he's done it is through his supply of his own son. You see, the way that we share the gospel as a church is by a tool that we call the three circles. And it starts off with brokenness. And I just want you to just be honest with God in this moment right now about the brokenness in your own life. We can look around the world and say that, you know, racially motivated shootings and war, all those things. But what about in your own life right now? What about the sin that right now you are entangled in? Jesus said that all those things that we get so bothered by in the news really come from the heart. But that wasn't God's design. His design was good for you and for me because it involved a dependence on him. Sin entered into the world. It entered in through the very first two people going their own way rather than God's way. And ever since then, we've been trying to get back through what we see, through saving ourselves, through supplying for our own needs. But God did something in order to save you. And that's what that's why he sent his son, Jesus, to come and to live a perfect life. He was in our broken world, but he himself wasn't broken. He died on the cross for your sin because the Bible teaches the consequence of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was then buried for three days, but on the third day, God raised him from the grave. He rolled away that stone, defeating sin and death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our hope is that not even death can separate us from God any longer. So we don't even have to fear death. And the Bible says that if you will believe this, if you will believe what God has done for you in his son, if you will believe that this is how God has chosen to save you to the uttermost, your deepest needs, you become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And then and only then you begin to grow as a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, into the image that God has intended for you. That's the good news of the gospel. So let me ask you a question. Are you near God's design because you have personally turned from your brokenness and sin and trusted and followed Jesus? Or, if you're being honest, would you say, I'm still in my brokenness? Our temptation is to say, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm not perfect, but I'm not the worst. If you had to pick one or the other, which would you say? And if the answer is, I guess I'm still in my brokenness and sin, then what is keeping you from turning from your sin and trusting and following Jesus today? I'm gonna invite for everyone to stand in this moment. We're gonna sing a song of response. Our pastors will be here at the front. And if today there is nothing keeping you from turning from your brokenness and sin and trusting and following Jesus, then I invite you, symbolic of that decision to trust Jesus, to leave your seat and come forward and share with us what God is doing in your life today.